Good morning. The U.S. standard railroad gauge, and that's the distance between the rails, is four feet, eight and one half inches. And you might be thinking to yourself right now, isn't that an odd number? Whoever came up with that? Well, that's exactly the way that, that they built the early railroads in England. And also the earlier railroads that, uh, uh, that were built here in America were built by British immigrants. So let's go back a, a few years before. Um, why did the English adopt this particular gauge? Well, because the people who built the pre-railroad tramways used that very same gauge. But you see, it, it doesn't st stop there because they in turn were, uh, were locked into this gauge because the people who built the tramways used the same standards in tools that they used for building wagons which were set at the gauge of, yes, you guessed it, four feet, eight and one half inches. So why were the wagons built at this scale? Well, because of their size and the wheels, were, um, would, it would not match the old wheel ruts on the roads. I bet you all didn't know that I'd be giving you a history lesson this morning, would you? So who built these old rutted roads? Where, where did they come from? Well, the first long-distance highways in Europe were built by Rome. And the reason why Imperial Rome built these highways was for the benefit of their legions, to move them from place to place. And these roads have been in use ever since. And because the ruts were first made by the Roman war chariots at four feet, eight and one-half inches, they did this for this reason to accommodate the Roman war horses that pulled the chariots. So, so what can we learn by, uh, by this? Because this is interesting. Well, we learn because maybe the old excuse, uh, because that's the way it's always been, may not be the best excuse that we might believe it to be. And when it comes to leadership, so many, so many people think that leaders should be the same thing that, that the last leader was, you know. In other words, that when there is a leadership change, everything should remain the exact same way. The methods should remain the same. The policies should remain the same. Everything should remain the same. And wouldn't it be nice if all leadership changes were, were smooth and no drama? And this does not just apply to the church in general, but this also applies to the business world, the sports world, and so on. Wouldn't it be nice if every time there was a change in leadership, everything would go smoothly? But sadly, this is not always the case, is it? And I'm sure we've seen this time and time again in society. And um, one thing I do want to bring to our attention this morning was, it was even the same way in, in Moses' day. Because you see, change was difficult. It was definitely, it was definitely um, difficult for the people of Israel. In Exodus 32, verse 9, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Even the prophet Nehemiah said in chapter 9, verse 16, But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments.
So let's ask ourselves this morning, how are we going to respond to change? How do we as the church respond to change? Well, we should respond to change the way God intends us to and the way he expects us to, and that is in total submission and in accordance with his word because it's his will. So this morning, I'm going to share with you guys as we continue in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 27, we are going to see how Moses passes the baton of leadership to Joshua and how Israel responded and also learn a lesson about how we, the church, need to respond as well. The first thing that we need to observe about biblical leadership is that biblical leaders will bring change. Let's just go ahead and say it. Let's just go ahead and admit it. Biblical leaders will bring change. Now, when we talk about biblical leaders bringing change, I do want to go ahead and say this up front. I'm not insinuating that, that they are bringing changes to the overall mission, okay? That doesn't change. That shouldn't change. That should never change. A biblical leader should never want or dream ab about changing that. And, and if a leader wants to change the overall mission, then are, are they truly a biblical leader? Numbers 27, 12 through 14 says, The Lord said to Moses, Go up into the mountain of Abarium and see that the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people, as your brother Aaron was, because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin, when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. And what's interesting to me is this is not the first time that Moses was being told this. This was not the first time because in Numbers 20, this happened. In verses 10 through 12, it said, Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Now, it was still many months before Moses would make that fateful climb in, 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 into the mountain to view the promised land. And that's covered in Deuteronomy chapter 34. But um, one thing that's interesting to me is, do you ever wonder why God is telling him this? Anybody else find, uh, find, find this interesting and he tells him twice? I personally believe that God told Moses now so that he himself could prepare his own heart for the right time when leadership would change. Maybe he was telling him now so that right now he in turn could, could, could be mentoring another. Jesus definitely spent a very considerable amount of time with, with his disciples as well, preparing them, mentoring them discipling them, uh, them, you might say. All that time he had spent with his disciples, 
And yet he first predicted his death in Luke 9, 22. Because he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And again in verse 44, he, 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 he goes on to say this, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. He says it a little more urgently. He's preparing them, preparing them for what is to come. Because there was definitely change coming. He was not changing the mission. He was changing hearts. All this time on his ministry, his parables, his miracles, he was changing hearts. And he, just like Moses was preparing the children of Israel during those 40 years, Jesus was preparing his disciples for not only his crucifixion and the change that was to come, but also for, for the work and their ministry that was to come. So they too would have a part in this mission. He was preparing them for that mission. Biblical leaders will bring changes. The second thing that we need to observe about, about biblical leadership, <clears throat> excuse me, is biblical leaders are moved by compassion. Numbers 27, 15 through 17 says this, Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them. Who shall lead them out and bring them in? And the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. I noticed something else very, very interesting about that passage. Are you noticing the conversation that's taking place here? You would think that there would be utter disappointment and devastation on the part of Moses. Wouldn't you think that? After leading the children of Israel for 40 years, wouldn't he think that he earned the right to walk into the promised land? However, Moses responds completely different than, uh, than what's expected. How many of you think that uh, he responded differently than, than what we ourselves personally would have responded? Because you see, Moses was not trying to, talk, to not talk God out of it. Doesn't even appear that Moses is even complaining about it. His only concern was for the children of Israel, the congregation, for the people, and not for himself. So they would not be leaderless. You see, sheep without a shepherd are in constant danger. They're in constant danger. They face slim provisions of food and water and safety. And you see, with, without a leader and without a guide, sheep never go where, where they're supposed to go. And truth be told, sheep are not really the brightest creatures, are they? But you see, thankfully God still wants his sheep to have a shepherd. It was all in his plan. He had a replacement for Moses because they needed one. They needed leadership, another godly man. And Moses is showing the nature of Jesus himself by expressing his concerns. 
Because you see, Jesus was also driven by compassion. He was concerned. And, and he was moved with compassion when he saw the sheep without a shepherd. He said this in Mark 6.34, it says, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. He was wore out, he was tired, but still he was showing compassion. He felt sorry for them because they needed his guidance. They needed his words. And, and you see, the jobs of shepherds, you know, we may think that they're simple, you know, to feed and to lead, to lead them out and lead them back in safely, you know, to give guidance when needed. And you see, the children of Israel are being compared to being like sheep. They always had been. The prophet Isaiah had this to say in chapter 53, verse 6. He said, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yes, the children of Israel were being compared to sheep, but there was something else there that we need to notice. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was yet another prophecy about Christ, about the mission. Moses was still concerned about the children of Israel, and Jesus is concerned about his people. Shouldn't we ourselves be moved and driven by that same compassion? Shouldn't we be living by their examples? Because biblical leaders are moved by compassion. The final thing that I'm going to discuss here this morning that we need to observe about biblical leadership is that biblical leaders empower other leaders. They power them. They mentor them. They train them, per se. Numbers 27, 18 through 23 says this. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, and all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of, of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation, and he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as, as the Lord directed through Moses. Let's take another look at verse 21. It, it says, And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest and shall inquire for him by the judgment of, of the Urim, before the Lord. Now the Urim is very significant here because it was worn on the breastplate of the high priest at the time. And, and, and we know this because of what it says in Exodus 28 verse 30. And, and in the breastpiece of judgment you shall put the Urim and the Thummim and they shall be as his heart. When he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. By wearing this breastplate, it was indicating to the children of Israel 
that this was God's will and that this was God's choice. So it held special significance. And up to this point, Joshua was, was mostly known by his servant-like association with Moses. I guess you could say Joshua was Moses' right-hand man, his sidekick or uh, his assistant. Exodus 24, 13 says, So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. I believe that time as, as Moses' so-called assistant, he was training Joshua. He was passing on his knowledge, passing on his skills, mentoring him, discipling him, encouraging him. He was preparing him for the leadership that he was now being called to undertake. And it was a big responsibility. And this public presentation of laying on of hands on Joshua was so important as well because it let the whole congregation, all the children of Israel, know that upon Moses' passing, Joshua would indeed be endowed with all the responsibilities of leadership and the nation of Israel would be expected to follow him. Jesus had spent three and a half years doing this with his disciples, constantly teaching them. All the parables, all the mentoring and development of their relationship had come down to this. It had all come down to this. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, Jesus was not just giving them the command to spread the gospel. He was also giving them the, the authority and the empowerment to do so. And he was showing empowerment to them by telling them that he would be with them always into the end of the age. So they too would have a part in the mission and all the work that they did. And us sitting here today is a direct response to their efforts. In conclusion this morning, when we, when we as Christians are more concerned about changing hearts and having compassion on others and empowering others, are we not in the same way fulfilling the Great Commission? Isn't that what we as Christians are called to do? Aren't we called to be leaders as well? Aren't we called to be set apart? Aren't we called to go and make disciples? As we look back through history, as far as the mission of the church goes, has anything changed? Has God changed? Did Moses change the mission? Did Joshua change the mission? Jesus didn't change the mission. He came to fulfill the mission. And the disciples did not change the mission. They continued the mission. And that is our mission today as the church. That's our mission as the Columbia Christian Church, to help continue that mission.
that mission that has been the same since the fall. You see, God's mission since then has been bringing us, mankind, back to him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you first and above all for Christ, for, for your precious son. Thank you for what he taught. Thank you for what he shows us and, and what he still shows us today. Thank you for the examples of leadership that we see in him, that we see in Moses, and, and, and even the leadership that we are shown in Joshua. And Lord, thank you for those men that followed Jesus so, so they in turn could continue Jesus' mission, begin the church. And I pray, Father God, that we, the Columbia Christian Church, are, are in direct continuance of your mission. And I pray, Father God, that we are glorifying you in all we do. It's in, it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.